Hello and welcome to OU's Nach Yomi. You can find this year posted at ouradio.org/nach or on my website, ericlevy.com, under the recording section. Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy, and I'm pleased to bring to you Chapter 4 of the Book of Ecclesiastes, the Book of Kohelet. In Chapter 4, we have a series of loosely connected explorations of social justice and social behavior. The theory in Chapter 3, where we left off, is that God will set everything right, but it happens in God's own good time. That is, yesh chefetz l'chol davar, but bi'ito, where God deems it uh, uh, the right time for it to happen. This causes Kohelet to despair a bit, since one cannot see the ultimate justice done in this world, since it's not immediate and sometimes doesn't even happen in this world, but it happens in the world to, to come. So now he says, Vishavti, which in my opinion is another technical word, meaning to revisit, to reconsider, or even to return to the drawing board. Notice that some of the Ani, 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 the self-centered uh, chapter that, that we had in chapter 2 is returned here, although nowhere near, near to that extent. But I do think that Kohelet is saying, with all due respect to how God takes care of things, from my perspective, from the Ani, we have some problems, which is that things don't always look right the way they should. Now, Rashi transforms all of this. And when the verse, as we'll see, about to start to talk about the oppressed people, he says that the oppression that's going on is a good thing, because it's talking about people who set aside the Torah in order to pursue their wickedness, and they are oppressed by God correctly in the world to come. So according to Rashi, Kohelet says a person who died before he got a chance to do sins was better off than a person who lived to do those sins. However, I'll stick with the more literal translation. Vishavti ani vayar ekol ha'ashukim asher na'asim takat ha'shamesh v'hinei dimata ha'ashukim ve'ein lahem menachem u'miyados kehem koach ve'ein lahem menachem. I myself reconsidered, I saw all the oppressed people that are made under the sun, that is, they suffer in their lifetimes. Behold, the tears of the oppressed, yet they receive no comfort, and their oppressors wield all the power, yet they receive no comfort. In the plain sense, these Ashukim are innocents whose social or political weakness allowed them to become oppressed oppressed by uh, the powerful. And what seems to be bothering Kohelet is not so much, or not only that there are oppressed people in the world, and not only that the oppressors get away with it, but they get away with it because nobody steps in to help the oppressed. You know the feeling, uh, if you ever rode the New York subways in the 1980s, so uh, you'll remember everybody had their heads tucked in a newspaper, and if anything happened on the train, they would say, you know, I didn't see anything, and every man essentially was for himself. It was that bad. So Kohelet gives us a bit of an explanation, if not a justification for why people refuse to get involved, because miyados kehem koach, because the because their oppressors are very powerful. However, they can't get comfort. The oppressed can't get comfort. It's very focused on the viewer of this oppression rather than the oppressed themselves. Um, and Coel says there is a real risk to the would-be comforter. The, they really are going up against the powerful and taking a risk, or understandably not taking a risk by not doing anything and not helping the oppressed, but that doesn't make it right, according to Kohelet. So I praise the dead who have already passed from this life over those who are still alive. Not because they can no longer be oppressed, because remember, the focus is not so much on the oppressed than on the impotent or apathetic or cowardly observers who won't help those being oppressed. So the dead are better off because they don't have to continue to fail 
to help the oppressed, as he will say explicitly in the next verse. V'tov mishenehem et asher aden lo haya, asher lo ra'at maseh ra, asher nasa tachar ha'shamesh. But better than both of them, meaning the living one and the dead one, are those who have not yet come into existence. Since they haven't seen, notice he says, lo ra'at, they haven't seen the terrible things that are done, tachar ha'shamesh, in their lifetimes. Now, perhaps Koala is referring to those who are not alive to be oppressed. However, I don't think that's, I don't think that's the meaning, because what difference does it make whether the person was dead and lived and then died or was never born in the first place? Once you're no longer being oppressed, you're no longer being oppressed, so what advantage does a person have in the fact that he was never alive in the first place? Um, I think what Kohelet is trying to say, and I think this supports this idea, is that by doing nothing, by a person who died but did nothing in his lifetime to alleviate the oppression, that makes him some way complicit. So therefore, it's better off this person who was never alive because he never got a chance to to sin. Um, the next section begins a new theory, but it is also born of a reassessment of a previous philosophy that Kohelet had. Kohelet concluded that people should work for the sake of the things that they earn and appreciate what they've earned. But similar to the selfishness of ducking one's head in the face of human suffering, we have another example of extreme selfishness. When a person doesn't work for the pleasure that he receives from the fruits of his labor, rather the following, V'ra'iti ani ekol amal ve'kol kishron ha'maseh ki'hi kinat ishmerehehu gam zehevel ruach. I myself observe all the toil and all the skilled work that it all comes from a person's jealousy of his compatriots. This too is absurd, or perhaps this impetus to work only for the sake of one-upping one's friend or, or, or comrade um, is fleeting, and it's like a desire of the wind. Now, some might say that this is in fact the capitalist ideal, that the idea of, engender, uh, the, the idea of competition engenders excellence and creativity, and competition is a good thing. Um, even Jewish law has this idea, something called kinat sofrim, meaning that one Torah scholar is jealous a bit of another Torah scholar, so it causes him to work harder and be a, de- a better scholar and a better teacher. Nonetheless, building a better mousetrap only for the sake of surpassing the other guy's mousetrap is absurd, according to Kohelet, because it doesn't last forever. Or perhaps what it means is it's like chasing the wind, because once you surpass one guy, there's always the next guy to better, and then there's the next guy to better, and then there's the next guy to better, so it's never over, and therefore it's absurd and endless. Um, the famous Bible scholar and conservative rabbi Robert Gordas identified the next verse, verse 5, as Kohelet quoting a, cosmo, a, a common wisdom which he will reject. Now, it's not easy to spot quotes in the Torah because there's no real punctuation. There's certainly no quotation marks. So it looks like verse 5 is Kohelet speaking. So how do you know that it's not him speaking? Because I think Gordas is absolutely correct. Because verse 6 is at odds with what is said in verse 5, which means that the same person really can't be saying both. So what happens is in verse 5, Kohelet is using this quote to support the idea that I just stated, that people who are ridiculously driven to produce more and more and more and better and better and better, they are the same people who say the following quote. Hakasil choveket yadav ve'ochel epsaro. A fool hugs his hands, meaning based on a similar phrase in Proverbs, a lazy person sort of holds his hands back from working, and as a result, he eats his own flesh, meaning any laziness causes his own destitution, and metaphorically, one must eat one's own flesh to survive because there's no more money around. And that's the end of the quote of these type of people who are constantly driven to do more and more and more. Well, Kohelet would argue that that is not the case. Tov milo chaf nachat 
Better, that is, the real wisdom is as follows. Better a palm full of relaxation or ease, ease of mind, ease of body, ease of spirit, than two whole handfuls of toil and chasing after the wind. Meaning, single-mindedly pursuing things that cannot be attained is like chasing after the wind. And Koala's not saying don't work. He does say work. But leave one little hand open to take a break, to smell the roses from time to, 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 from time, to, to time. The idea that he said, uh, the, and, the, and the reason why he used the metaphor of Malo Chofnaim, two hands full, that metaphor means that these rich people are not just, just being rich is a bad thing, but being rich to the exclusion of anything else isn't worth the price. In verse 7, Kohelet now moves on to a new observation, which is connected to the problems focusing on uh, the work needed to get one's lot in life. So I myself reconsidered, and I saw absurd, an absurdity, meaning in what happens in one's lifetime. It's a situation where a person works only by himself, with no partner. He doesn't even have a son or a brother, meaning he has nobody to work with him. In that case, there is no end to his toil. Moreover, he never sees satisfaction from his wealth. And he says, quote, the Ani is not uh, Kohelet there. Again, Kohelet is quoting. For whom this guy, this lone worker, saying, who am I working myself so hard for, preventing myself from any type of tov, which probably means any type of enjoyment. This too is worthless, and it's a terrible business. Now, if we return to chapter 2, Kohelet said that the whole purpose in life is as follows. To do good, righteous things, and to work hard so that you can appreciate the fruits of your labor, which God gives to one when they are good and in fact takes it away from the toil and labor of the bad. Kohelet also said, don't focus on the son or the inheritor of your business that he might be a fool and squander it away because if you focus only on that, you'll despair from starting. But unfortunately, that puts you in a situation where you think you have to do everything yourself because you can't really focus on who comes next. So now Kohelet rethinks it and says, no, wait a second. On the other hand, if you have no son or no brother or no partner to work with and to share with, then that's absurd because ultimately it can't last forever. Eventually you die. And there must be some sense that a person has of bequeathing the fruits of one's labor. If you're only focused on what will happen in 100 years from now, then you won't start and do anything. But if you're not focused at all on maybe passing over some of your wealth to the person that you love, to the next person down the line, then there's also no sense of, of producing anything. So he's trying to find a balance, a, a, a golden mean. And that brings Kohala to a next related topic regarding mutual effort, combining together with work. So we have in verse 9, Tovim hashanayim min ha'echad asher yeshlam sachar tov v'amalam. Two is better than one in that they profit well from their toil. Why? Ki im yipolu ha'echad yakim et chavero. Because should one stumble, the other can support his friend. He can pick him back up. Whereas if a lone person stumbles, there will be no second person to support him. Also, if they lie down, these two lie down, it will be warm for them. But for a lone person, how will he become warm? Now, of course, this, this hints not so much at a business relationship, but to a family relationship. And the idea that there is this dual 
path in life, that you have to take two paths in life, in the physical pursuits, one which is business and making money, and the other one is to produce a family, that's an idea that Kohelet will return to quite a few times, so we shouldn't be surprised to see it here. Continuing on with the proofs that uh, being alone is not a good idea, here that it's best not to slog on politically. Why? If he will attack the individual, the two will stand up against him, which means a, a, an attacker will only attack a lone person, but if you go out with somebody, then that then the two can stand up and be safer. Now, who is this attacker? It, it never states. It could be an enemy. It could be the Yitzhahara. It could be any number of things, but the idea is essentially there. Returning to the verse, but the triple braided cord will not easily be detached, which means a cord made out of three strings, meaning a triumvirate, a troika, is best than a duo. Perhaps Kohelet is returning to um, the idea of jealousy, because jealousy is that which often keeps one from bringing in partners. Uh, the fear that a partner may take off or, or may steal everything that you have or may oust you out of your own company. So Kohelet says the advantages of being together with multiple people outweigh the disadvantages. And in fact, the disadvantages, the jealousy and the paranoia, in fact, they're hevel, they're hot air, they have really no substance. Now, these three, are, are there metaphoric layers of meaning here? No doubt. That is the nature of biblical wisdom, of chokhmah in Tanakh, that there are multiple layers. There's the plain sense, and there are multiple layers of metaphoric sense. Now, what are the metaphoric senses? Is God the third party of the family relationship? Is he the third string of the core that doesn't break? Perhaps. Is it a son that a father and mother should get together and have a family, and once they do, they create an, a, a bound cord? Perhaps. Uh, Rashi suggests that it may be uh, talking about the, the, the three-level cord, maybe talking about the oral law, the written law, and pursuing a business at the same time, which means combining derech eretz, or, or the way of life, with, uh, with Torah study, and maybe it's all of these things. And that's really the key. Uh, metaphors are not limited to a single referent. It could be all of these things, or any of them. But I'll just stick to the literal sense, because that's the only thing we can really know of for sure. Here, now, in verse 13, the text becomes very biographical, I think, or even autobiographical, because it seems to be focusing on Solomon's life and his disastrous succession, where his son Rechavam, a foolish leader, is rejected by the northern tribes. This happens in the book of Kings, chapter 12. And his former valet, a person named Yeravam, who was in charge of the northern tribes, and in fact, it was the head of the strongest of these tribes, tribes, the head of Shevet Ephraim, is first sent to into exile and jail for rebellion. Eventually, he's sprung for jail, and he comes back to challenge Solomon, and in fact, successfully splits off the northern tribes under his own rule. So, I think that the next section is talking about this experience, and it doesn't come out of the blue. Remember that in chapter 2, which is which are all the philosophies that 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 Kohelet is revisiting to see whether they're right the idea was um you know not worrying about succession but on the other hand here's somebody who the succession didn't go well for and it really turned out very uh, badly tov yelled miskein vechachami melech zaken uchsil better is an unfortunate child meaning unfortunate polit- politically a commoner or a person of low social status or political status but who is wise Better him than an old king who is a fool. Now, in what way is a fool? Asher lo yadali, he's ayer od, who no longer knows how to be careful. Now, whether that means his lack of caution means in a Torah sense or in a moral sense, whether it means he no longer has political acumen or that he no longer takes advice from his uh, wise men because he considers himself, you know, too wise. 
why is this commoner better than that unwise king? Because out of jail, the word hasurim is short for ha'asurim, out of jail he, the young but wise, miskane person, goes out to rule, and even during his, i.e. the old, unwise, uncareful king's reign, a poor one is born. I think that poor, sad sack one is talking about Rechavam, his own son. Because the kings bore or, or, or trained no viable successor, uh, which was the concern of chapter 2, and is which actually was realized during Solomon's life, it opened the door for everything to be lost and for somebody else to take over. Now, Rashi agrees that all of this is historical, but he prefers uh, to say that it's referring to the generation of the flood, generation 1, and then generation 2 is the generation of the dispersion. Also, he, he sees this as a metaphor for the good inclination and the evil inclination, that would be the king and the, uh, who's a fool and the, uh, and the poor person who was wise. But I still think that this is a Solomon reference, which of course will cause me to read the text in a subjective way which supports my theory. And as I've stated before, this is the difficulty of a difficult book, which is it opens the door for subjective interpretation. So I would ask you to look at other possibilities. But continuing on with my theory, Ra'iti I saw all living people who walk about under the sun, meaning who go about their lives, with the second boy who will arise underneath him, which means these people all follow the king's successor, now, I'm sorry, the rebellious one, rather than Rechavam, who was his, you know, his, his blood successor, um, and they broke away from the uh, kingdom. And then this is a very difficult verse, which does not fit very well into my theory. But I'm going to stick with my theory for now that it's biographical, referring to the end of Solomon's reign. And based on that, perhaps what the verse means is that there is no end, aim Kate's, to the nation that got placed before them. But the ones who came afterwards, they will eventually not be happy, meaning that they chose their successor because they got everything that they wanted and there was no limit to the amount of people that followed this this successor, this Yeravam who split away the kingdom. But in the end, the succession, this this desire for a king, all of this is fleeting and like wanting the win because eventually the king goes and everything that you schemed for and wanted goes as well. Nothing is permanent and poor choices made for instant gratification do not last. That's the theory. Moving on to the final verse, which begins a completely new focus. In fact, it really fits better in the next chapter. Uh, specifically, it talks about uh, the relationship uh, between man and God, service to God, in and out of the temple, and it will continue, as I said, into chapter 5. Guard your steps, meaning your behavior, when you go to the house of God. Listening, meaning listening to God's commandment, is closer, is karov, meaning closer to what God wants, than the offerings of fools, which means people who don't listen to God, but then go to the temple anyway, and figure that their sacrifices will give them atonement for everything, is idiotic. Getting back to the verse... Because they, the ones who pay attention to God, don't know how to do evil, which means they don't get into trouble in the first place. I'll explain more about this verse when we continue on in the next chapter.